Welcome to the Nautilus. I am Captain Nemo, leader of this vessel. The opinions expressed do not reflect the views of the sailors' captains. And you may hear sea shanties that, well, children should not be hearing, so keep them out of this. Anywho, we are heading towards Atlantis, home of Atlantean denim. So we must dive! Dive! Welcome! Welcome everyone to Two Dudes, One Double Feature, the show in which two dudes talk two films, and that is about it. I am Dude One, Richard. And I'm Dude Two, Joe. And we have some fun and exciting things to talk about today, but first I must ask as always, how are you Dude Two? Well, I feel like I got some things done. Yeah! Sorry. Well, I'll I'll build up to that. Oh, okay. um, Okay. Uh, my my man cave has desperately needed like a sort of spring cleaning as far as like getting rid of stuff and storing stuff. So I've I've been packing a lot of stuff in a bin that I want to keep, but I don't need to display right now. And I'm just going through things that do, I'm like, do I seriously want to keep this and all that kind of stuff? Because I'm preparing for more items to come in here in the future and i need room for them and i'm at the point where it's a it's a breaking point how (laughs) how how much do you like have in storage versus what you have on display i'm curious i think you've told me once but i'm just curious did i ever give you an exact number i don't even know dude i know you've i know you've shown me like you know like oh i have like this bin or this bin that's like stuff that i just even haven't displayed or i don't know if i want to keep kind of thing I have at least a couple bins in the attic right now, and I have a couple bins in the man cave that are just storage. So I have like a bunch of Funko Pops that I don't, I'm not displaying at the moment, and that's not even counting like Christmas decorations that that I put up, you know, each year in the man cave that mm-hmm. has its own separate bin. That's always the that's always the problem with being a collector is just the overflow, which depending on the space you have is going to happen either really fast. Or moderately fat. It never like it never like happens slowly because you're just getting so much and then eventually you're like crap. I don't have anywhere to put this. Yeah, like because I've I've got a few hot toys on pre order, and I, I I mean I I need room for my Captain Rex hot toy. You know, like he needs space. <laughs> you just there's so I bet there's like there's one person listening to this going. Just don't buy more stuff. Like you don't understand. You you that and that person who doesn't listen to the show is my mom. <laughs> Love you, mom. Probably my mom too, if I'm being honest. Or she'll just be like, "Oh, did you get that? That's you, cool." <laughs> it makes me think of a line from uh, one of my favorite documentaries, "The People versus George Lucas," and uh, this this one mother who has like a husband and, and son who are collectors and she's oh no like, each one of these toys and every dollar that's been spent on them is a chip at my <laughs> oh <heart."> no <laughs> and i'm like man i hope i well i know allison likes like collecting things too however 
However, I hope she doesn't get to a point where she's featured on a documentary about something. <laughs> like, all on, this crap on, is just chips in my heart, Joey. On the next season of Hoarders, <laughs> we're visiting Joey DeAngelis. I think I'm fine. Covers in pop, covered in pops and Blu-rays. I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is. Listen, it, listen. If it isn't on the floor, I won't know where it is. Yeah, I'm fine. Okay. <laughs> I don't. You have a problem. You do. Get those cameras out you of here. Do. Get those cameras out of here. I don't want to see them. But, but uh, what were you gonna say? Uh, I was gonna say no. It's it's the absolute curse of just being a collector like I, I i'm admittedly a fairly picky person when it just comes to like everything and so like when i i do collect things i think it does help me personally so like i like i like too many things yeah that's my problem <laughs> because i like i like disney which encompasses just way too many things yeah i i, I like star wars I like, you know, Planet of the Apes. I like, you know, Universal Monsters. Like, there, there's just, like, I went, went to Suncoast the other day, and I picked up a glow-in-the-dark Godzilla model, model kit I remembered as a kid, and which I have, like, a, something close to that, but I'm like, did I really need to buy this model no. kit? No! But you, the answer but, is no! But, but I got you know it! What? You got I it! I got it! It's mine! Yeah! Nobody else has it! Ha-ha! <laughs> <laughs> it's the last one on the shelf! I took it home! And now it's on the shelf. It was the last one. <laughs> I believe it was the last one on the shelf. <laughs> <laughs> oh my but god! But I will say my collecting habit uh, has helped because there's been an endeavor that we've been talking about for the last couple of months. Four on this podcast that four uh, months. Yes, at, at four <laughs> four months. Um, and and that is uh, the the contentious topic of me putting a video. On the channel. Yes. On our YouTube channel. Yeah, in case you don't remember, we do have a YouTube channel. For the longest time, I was the only one that had a video up on there where I talked about uh, two Sam Raimi superhero movies, uh, Spider-Man and Darkman. So kind of like a a solo do double feature kind of video and just my thoughts on superheroes in general. Um, And so we've been talking for a while about Joey finally uploading something. And guess what, ladies and gentlemen? Guess what? Guess what, Joey? Tell him. I finally uploaded a video. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> well, actually, I should say I filmed myself. <laughs> Richard was so gracious to edit and upload the video. Yeah, I, I, I like, like, not that he needs it, but I made him look cool. This is, this is true. Because listen, here's the thing. I edit the podcast on, on, a, on a generally weekly, ba- we- weekly basis. I, uh, you know, we both work, I, you know, and it just, I can't edit. I can't no. edit because a I can't edit, but b I can't, I I just don't have time to edit like a vi- video myself and do all the th- magical things that you do. And that's so thank I you. mean you're welcome. I mean uh, I I mean I've been doing YouTube. I mean I started YouTube in like 2009 and was making videos for a while, and so I just got like it was just a really tedious thing, but I got fairly decent at editing, and so I have. You know, I have just like a really like simple version of Adobe Premiere on my phone, which is kind of amazing that that's the truth. And I'm able to, you know, film on my camera or get footage from you and then put it all in that and then just edit something. So it, it's and it and it took like an evening, like a little from an, like going from an afternoon to an evening to actually like make the whole thing. So it didn't take very long, but I had fun with it, at least, you know, like 
I normally am editing myself, but you know, so there's like some tiptoeing. So I'm like, okay, is Joey gonna be okay with this? Like, like there's one, <laughs> there's one bit where um, you just like I like showing off my stuff, which out of context is bad but really funny <laughs> and so i was nervous like if i emphasize this like for humor because obviously the con keep the context but emphasize that just because it's funny like how would he feel about that you laughed so you seemed okay with it yeah i mean otherwise i, I would tell you it wouldn't yeah. have been in the video yeah it wouldn't it wouldn't be in the video <laughs> but then like i would also throw in some other random stuff like uh like i threw myself in there so i appear i have a cameo in the video <laughs> and um it just just like the video is basically just me showing off it, it, it's like I, I pick up blu-rays and other pieces of physical media so i'm just you know showing that stuff in, in the video and i'm this is we're recording this on april 14th um and i'm looking to which on that note another, by the way yeah. this friday is my mother's birthday so happy birthday mom i love you happy birthday tina but also, like, I've been thinking about doing another one of these um, because I've accumulated enough, like, you know, cool, nifty pieces of physical media over the last couple of weeks and some other neat um, neat items uh, to show off. But beyond that, how are you? Um, you know what? This, this morning actually kind of sucked. So, like, you know, I've talked about having a CPAP and sleep apnea and everything that, you know, I deal with and stuff. So, um... The type of hose, I guess you could say, that I have for my CPAP machine is, uh, it's called a nose pillow, because the the one that goes over your mouth just kind of, like, gives me, like, a bit of claustrophobia, so I couldn't do that. Or at least, I bet if I got used to it, I probably could try it if, if I've decided to change, but, um, especially because I have a lot of issues with my nose anyway, but, um... One thing that'll happen periodically, especially if I, I don't clean it right away, which happens sometimes, um... Like, it'll start, like, giving some sort of sensation in my nose that I either can't stop sneezing or it just becomes really runny and it's just, it's not good. And so, it, um, normally this happens, like, after I've woken up in, like, the early morning or something, but um, it happened, like, in the middle of the night last night and, and so, like, it was just really bad. So, I'm, like, really tired and I'm, like, trying to clean the hose uh, so that I can, like, sorry, get dude. some sleep, but... um it didn't it didn't really work out the way i'd hoped and so i didn't really i ended up going back to sleep and i didn't really wake up to like noonish or like two ish somewhere around there and so because i wanted to try to wake up in the morning but um you know I, I, at least i woke up so that's all that matters uh, mm. but i'm glad you're awake thank you <laughs> thank you very much um but no that's just the for anyone that's listening that you know Especially if you're a younger person that has to live that CPAP life, you know, you probably know the struggles. Um, clean your hose. Uh, because, especially if you have a nose hose, nose hose, that's just a fun word. Um, and, you know, it just will mess up with your, sin your sinuses and stuff. So it's definitely worth keeping that, like, good maintenance on that. Um, on the other note, um, so, okay. Uh, I, sh I talked to you about this already. Uh, but, uh, uh, about a year ago, almost a year ago, well, by this point, it wouldn't have been almost a year ago, but a while ago, <laughs> um, I had pre-ordered, uh, a video game, which was a Samurai Jack game called Samurai Jack Battle Through Time, and, gotta get back, back to the past, Samurai Jack, 
<laughs> and so, like, it was initially released as a digital game from uh, Adult Swim Games, and it had the involvement of the creators. Uh, I think one of the the series writers, not Gendy himself, but one of the series writers, came on and like wrote the the game and stuff. And they tried to make sure it was it wasn't just like another cash grab kind of situation. But um, I'm not a big digital person. Going to the physical media thing. Uh, I'm, I'm also not a big physical media per, or, uh, digital media person, but I love physical media. And they had said that they were going to also release physical copies of the game through a, uh, distributor known as limited run games, mm. which mm-hmm. I'd never heard of them until after that. <laughs> didn't, didn't know who they were, what their gist was. Um, and then after just looking it up, it, just based on thumbnails, because I didn't watch any of the videos, uh, people seem to have an issue or a slight issue with Limited Run and maybe just like their business model or like the potential they have, but they don't actually like, I don't know. Um, but either way, I wanted this uh, game. I wanted the physical copy of it for my Switch. And so I just said, screw it. And I ordered it. And um, initially they said it would take about maybe four months to make the game, the physical copy of the game, and then ship it out. And uh, that, that, that happened in August is when I pre-ordered it, and it's April of next year, and I finally got it in the mail. <laughs> yeah, because I, I feel like I, you talked about it a while ago, mm-hmm. and I just, I guess I just ass- I forgot about it or just assumed that you would have had it by, na- by now, but nope. wow. Yeah. It took a second. Wow. Now, obviously, I imagine COVID had something to do with it. Like, you know, and so I'm not going to blame them on that. Uh, but uh, And it's a relatively new company because they've only been around for like five years. So, but um, the general gist of the company is, I am, as, to my knowledge, they, they make limited runs, like physical media limited runs, as, as the company is called, on digital games. Like the, they're also doing a physical copy of the the old Scott Pilgrim game that came out like ten years ago with the movie, and so they wanted to like you know because so many people, myself included, so many fans have been wanting this game to come back because they just completely took it off servers, so like no one could play it or buy it, and so they decided to bring it back um, and release a physical version of it. So obviously, I pre-ordered that. That's actually coming in the mail pretty soon in comparison. <laughs> So, oh, good. so I think I pre-ordered that about four months ago, so that one's a little bit more timely. Um, but it's just crazy how long it took. But it's it's a fun game, actually. It, it's a lot like the um, the games from like when like they would release stuff from like SpongeBob, like you know, and it was like kind of licensed property games based on like cartoons. But it does have a little bit more fun to it, and it it kind of feels like an older action game, even too. So. It's a lot of fun, and it's got the original voice cast, or at least, you know, for, yeah, you know. Um, as much as you yeah. Yeah. Um, like, you know, Phil Lamar's voicing Samurai Jack and everything, so. Um, and every time you put the game in and you start it up, it does the opening from the show, so like, long ago in a distant, like, that whole thing. So that's mm-hmm. really cool. So I never skip that, because it's just fun. No, you, why, why would you? You should never skip why that. Why would you? Never skip it. No, um, may Ma- Ma- Mako uh, rest in peace. Yes, because incredible, incredible um, voice acting talent. Though I will say, Greg Baldwin is, is good mm-hmm. as as Aku, and also um, I- Iro on uh, Avatar. Mm-hmm. I follow him on on Twitter, and he's he, he's a he's really funny because <laughs> uh, he's he's talked about like you know 
being a voice act being a voice actor and being like the guy who's had to step into Mako's shoes in like in like several roles and he's like I wonder what like having a conversation with, with Mako in heaven would be like I imagine it's either thank you for continuing my legacy or what they got a white guy to play me <laughs> what <laughs> So, uh, it, it is the funny tweet, but shout out to Greg Baldwin. And of course, again, rest in peace, Mako. Yes. So, but I was excited to get it. Um, I have it right here. Um, if you can hear it, I, I hear it. It sounds like a clap. Yay. Woo! Applause, applause, <laughs> applause. Um, so it's a very fun game. And on top of that, I had pretty much, uh, an entire like Gendy Tartakovsky day because I also, got a Asaz Ventress Black Series figure that I ordered um, a couple months ago. And as you know, in case you don't, uh, Asaz Ventress, while probably most famously known uh, for her role in the Clone Wars show, Dave Filoni show, she was actually in Gandhi Tartakovsky's Clone Wars show first. So she was actually created by him. So, uh, yeah, so it was actually kind of a fun day. And... Um, it definitely makes up for my weird, unfortunate CPAP situation. That, uh, that certainly helps. Um, just also want a quick, uh, quick shout out to, uh, two people in regards to my video. Uh, thank, thanks to Harry for commenting on the video and also, uh, my friend Anthony Papetti for, uh, retweeting the, the video on Twitter. Just want to give them, uh, brief, brief shout outs, but I think, we really ought to get into these movies. This is quite a double feature. Real quickly, if you don't mind, I have the video currently pulled up uh, on our YouTube channel. Please subscribe, obviously. And you are sitting at 40 views currently. And uh, you have a new comment that says, Hey, two dudes, one double feature. I met Ray Harryhausen when I was 13 and saw the Kraken and Medusa stop-motion figures at the convention he came to. I, I also have those Criterions of Ghost Dog, 1984, and Bamboozled, but haven't watched my copies yet. I've seen Ghost Dog and 1984 before, but I have never seen Bamboozled. Thanks for sharing. That is from Kubrick Lover 1972. So, yeah, that's pretty cool. That's really cool. This was actually a double feature that sort of came about because both Joey and I, A, love these movies, and B, wanted to just talk about them because it was on our brains for, like, the past year, if we're being honest. And so, um, I don't, what were we even supposed to talk about? Or wasn't it... Well, I don't want to say because I don't mm -hmm. want to spoil it, but... What I will say is our first movie, uh, to quote its tagline is the mightiest motion picture of them all. And that might be slightly exaggerated, but if you asked, like, nine-year-old Joey, then he would agree with this tagline. And that movie is the 1954 Di Walt Disney production of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Starring the ever-charming Mr. Kirk Douglas. And with... Go ahead. Go ahead. J James Mason... <laughs> And Peter Laurie. <laughs> and, and let's not forget Paul Lucas. Can't forget Paul Lucas. Because he's, you, you can't, he's also, he's also great in this movie as well. And the seal. What's the seal's name? Esmer, Esmeralda. Though I, I don't know if Esmeralda, the, I don't know if the actor seal had another name. If I find out, I will incorporate it into, um, I will, I'll make a note of it in the episode. 
Yes. But the seal was great. Oh, the seal's great. You know. Seal's great. 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. I'm going to talk a little about myself, as I tend to do sometimes on these episodes. You selfish. I know. I have a podcast. I co-host a podcast, and I, I think some of it should be dedicated to me. <laughs> There's more than one dude, sir. <laughs> that's that's not my problem. But <laughs> but anyway, so twenty thousand leagues. Um, as I've said before, one of my big things growing up is my dad's VHS collection. We passed away, left behind a number of titles that I would go on to discover, and many of them became my favorite myth films, like King Kong, yeah. Citizen Kane, Die Hard, Jura- you know, Jurassic-, Jurassic Park, the Star Wars movies, especially Indiana Jones. 20,000 Leagues was one of those, and that was one I watched for a very long time on VHS. I actually didn't get the DVD. I don't think I got the DVD until I went to, I think it was the Virgin Megastore, Oh yeah, the Virgin Mega Store in what used to be downtown Disney in Disney World. Now the Virgin Mega Store for people like us was like the greatest thing to ever exist. Like I wish, I wish twenty-seven-year-old me could go there right now. It's gone, unfortunately. It's gone. Yeah. Like we didn't really have a ver- like I think there was like it was very scarce in my area, but I knew of it, and I remember going to one once, I believe, but. Like, just from, like, seeing, like, you know, images, and also Virg- uh, it shows up in um, Dracula 2000, mm. <laughs> and it was like, this looks so cool. <laughs> but yeah, the Virgin... Not Dracula 2000, though. I mean, no offense to Dracula, it's, just, it's not that great, <laughs> but, but the story, yes. Go on, yeah, sorry. Yeah, Virgin Megastore, so I got the DVD, it was a two-disc DVD, and it's one of those DVDs where it's not like the regular DVD case where it's kind of thin, it's a chunky guy. Where it has like separate sections where you sort of have to like really open it. And oh yeah, disc yeah. Has its own mm-hmm. section because this disc was loaded. I still think it is one of the best like DVDs I've ever purchased. I I've never I will never get rid of it. And like folks, this thing has a Blu-ray which is only available through the Disney Movie Club. But I still recommend getting that and the DVD because the DVD has an hour and a half making of documentary. It's got deleted scene it's got a lot of stuff it's got it's a really impressive dvd and it really makes me miss like quality bonus features but yeah Twenty Thousand leagues um just it was always one of my favorites growing up always a title that i fell asleep watching like not because i was bored but because i was like okay i was watching it on a school night it was it was a it was a it was a comfort thing it was a comfort thing yeah so it's like you know I, i i pop in the vhs tape on my little my little 12-inch uh, v- built-in VCR TV or whatever. Yeah, and, and, and that was the coolest thing, man. Like, that- let's let's see a let's see a flat screen actually be ballsy enough to put a Blu-ray player in it. Come on, dude. Now that makes me just want to buy one of those TVs, honestly, just to have it. Like, I'll, <laughs> I, I, I know exactly where I would put it too. Like, where I currently have my Millennium Falcon uh, toy box figure, I'd probably put a TV there, like a small TV there. Just because it's just the novelty of that is so cool. But anyway, mm-hmm. so 20,000 Leagues, I it's always been a favorite of mine. But I want to know what you, because when, when I heard that you were a huge fan of this movie as well, or you liked this movie, I want to know your history about this film. Well, like... Or a little, you know, whatever. I mean, I talked a little bit about it with the Atlantis episode, because... It was really, again, it was the, the Disney Atlantis movie that sort of sparked at least an, an, an any kind of interest in some sort of like sea exploration type movies or adventure type movies. 
And um, it was it was stuff like that that sort of sparked my interest in Jules Verne, who obviously wrote the book that this movie's based on, and was an incredible influence on science fiction in general. Um, but just this idea of these people going on these adventures, whether under the sea or, or into the earth or around the world or to the moon, you know, whatever the exploration may be, you know, the idea of finding something wonderful there or finding something like exciting there. And so watching Atlantis, you know, which is, if anything, a massive like love letter to Jules Verne and, you know, his types of storytelling in so many ways, it, it influenced me to want to, actually bother to check out some of his books because you know fun fact when i was younger i didn't really like to read because i just you know a dyslexia sucks b um <clears throat> excuse me um b i'm just like adhd makes me so antsy that you know it just doesn't give you the patience to sit down and read a book sometimes which really sucks as well um which also sort of affects movie watching sometimes but just i i remember like picking up 20,000 Leagues and just, like, reading it, but, like, almost, like, skimming it or just reading it really fast without actually, like, really retaining everything and then having to, like, look stuff up later about it just to be like, oh, I remember this bit from the book. Or, like, I remember this part or this part or that part. Um, but uh, I eventually would watch the movie a little bit later. Um, and, obviously, the, the image of the Nautilus was really cool because it's just a cool-looking vehicle and it's 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 definitely one of those movies uh along with you know the book and atlantis again that you know like the ocean is a scary but kind of exciting place because like while like we you know we were talking about earlier there's so much that we do know about the world now versus then but there's still so much worth exploring mm-hmm and 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 admittedly there's just going to be some things that it, physically at least for now we will never achieve because you know of temperature water pressure but it doesn't mean it's entirely impossible right you know what i mean mm -hmm. and that's kind of what i loved about Jules Verne especially in comparison to like other science fiction writers like Mary Shelley or you know HP or not HP uh HG Wells who would tell science fiction stories that were more about the fears of you know like like alien invasion for example or you know uh so someone taking the power of science into the into the wrong hands and like you know defying god and all that stuff Jules Verne was like you know doing immense amounts immense amounts of uh, research just going like what if this existed and what what would that imply? Like he like you know people joke that like the Simpsons, Jules Verne predicted the future of science in a lot of ways, just from like immense research, like you know the submarine, which at the time was like like a pod, I think, or something. Like there was like there was something. Yeah. The crazy thing is, I think I think Jules Verne, if I'm not mistaken, when I was watching like one of the, it was like a little documentary thing on the the DVD about Jules Verne. I think he predicted like where the the rocket like where the rocket to the moon yeah. would be yeah which is mine and he had a pretty reasonable idea maybe not all the exact mechanics of it but like he had a pretty reasonable idea of how that would be achieved you know yeah which is pretty wild and also just worthy of note as well with like there's we talk about like adaptations of things like one of the first notable not even just science fiction movies but just movies period a trip to the moon 
George Méliès. George George Méliès, like one of the most one of the most influential movies, period. You know, and, and you know Jules Verne um, story, but um, in regards to Twenty Thousand Leagues, just a basic run rundown of the story. You know, there's a mysterious what they think is a sea monster or mysterious phenomenon that's taking down all of these ships. They're trying to figure out what the hell is going on, so they consult the help of Professor Aranax, played by Paul Lucas, and Conseil, played by the great Peter Lorre, um, to sort of investigate uh, this stuff. And they're also, on that boat is uh, Ned Land, played by Kirk Douglas, and... Harpooner. Harpooner. And Charming Man Extraordinaire. <laughs> they are struck by this quote-unquote sea monster, and then they find themselves, the boat is destroyed, and they're the only three survivors. Even just, just talking about the imagery, though, of that scene of just, like, um, this mysterious, like, green-eyed figure just, like, moving through the water. And, you know, like, and it still kind of works this day. Like, you can, obviously, you can tell that it's, you know, obviously, like, a miniature, like, a prop in water. But either way, like, it's just the, the way it's shot and the imagery and the lighting and stuff, it's just really, like, the eyes especially no, are really cool. And the, a lot of that can be attributed to just all-around, like, Renaissance man, Harper Goff, who came up with the design of the Nautilus because he thought about, like, alligators, alligators and crocodiles, and sharks. Well, the sharks had, like, the dorsal fin, but he also thought about alligators, how they have their eyes, like, sort of peering above the water. So it, he kind of was able to merge those two ideas because in a lot of other adaptations of 20,000 Leagues, the, 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 the Nautilus looks like a bullet. It looks like a bullet. It looks like what you think of would be a standard submarine. Yeah. But Harper Goff, I, I really feel like this movie is also just secretly kind of influential because it really just the steampunk elements. I, I feel like that's it, it's it's a big it's a big factor in that because you look at the Nautilus, it's very much it feels like a very just steampunkish design. Like it has it is clearly like old school, but you're also like, oh, this is like the 1800s. And they have this very complicated nuclear. What they imply <clears throat> imply as a nuclear powered submarine. Yeah, in the in the mo- and, in story, and also just that too, just the way that they did that visually. My dog's barking. By the way, again, hi dog. <laughs> <laughs> the, the only other guest to be have a more frequent appearance on this show. Yeah. Um, but no, just the, the way because I didn't know this, but you were telling me they they had a bunch of like cheap bowls. Yes, with like the the with like the lights so flashing jo- John in the background. Hen- yeah, John Hench, who was a you know a guy at, at at the Disney Studios, who would also I think he did like sketches and stuff for like um like Space Mountain and and, and all this a lot of stuff, right? And this guy talks about how like they needed to show off nuclear power because in the original book, they the big thing was electricity. The Nautilus was electrical powered, I believe. But yeah, but because yeah. this was the fifties, we're in the Cold War, we're in a post. Hiroshima Nagasaki world they needed to up the up the stakes and up like okay this is futuristic so they had this not the Nautilus nuclear powered like and they're able to show it off in a fun scene where um Aranax is looking in with this lead covered like you know front mask almost and the light is like yeah blinding you know, but those little like bowls that are in that scene, it's just a bunch of colors and there's dime store bowls that are that are up there, you know. This major production <laughs> which eclipsed like Gone with the Wind as far as budget 
had like you know there's they got to make the best of their budget you know sometimes so it's just it was just so it's so inventive honestly it's just so inventive just to like see that and just the way it almost makes you want to just do that just be like well it worked then maybe it'll work now um also i just want to give a shout out to emile curie um who won an oscar for this for production design on this film and like he's responsible for some of the reds that you see in the nautilus and and like just the, the overall look of it and the fact that Nemo's library we're going to get to other parts there's so much to talk about with this movie but Nemo's library not one book in that library is like chosen because whatever they picked all the all the books in that library had a purpose you know they, they there was a thought process behind every detail in, in um you know in the Nautilus in ne- Nemo's salon in every part of that ship which is amazing honestly the whole like the whole set design of the nautilus is like we were talking about like like the design of it and everything it's just really really cool i always loved like the bubble window like that's like like right dead center in in the thing um and uh whenever it opens it sort of opens up like like it sort of like expands like a circle yeah kind of like kind of like those things that um a lot of silent movie directors had on their cameras and then they would just kind of like i forget what it's called but they were like move a switch and then like it would like close the iris or they would open it it was like a filter kind of aperture i don't know what i don't know what we're talking about it was like (laughs) maybe like an exterior aperture maybe but like it gave it it gave like a lot of shots that sort of like focused look right where it would like focus in on something and there'd be like a black it it looked like the james bond like circle yes yeah that's what i thought of when i saw that without actually knowing what it was called sure sure there's just so many cool designs but also just um the uh the the piano is like the coolest thing like he has this big organ mm-hmm. in the middle of the ship and i didn't know this but you told me that they actually like repurposed that piano yeah so um disneyland is is opening at the end of um at the end of april um we're recording this april 14th and if you go to the disneyland haunted mansion um and you go to the scene where it's like in the, the ballroom and you see like all the different ghosts like dancing and partying. And at the very end, you see that organ. That is the re, uh, repur- the repurposed 20,000 Leagues organ in the Disneyland version. I should specify again, the California, 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 um, California, California. Um, but and then I was also reading, too, that they bought that for 50 bucks, um, that organ. Really, and they they reper they they, they they like it didn't work, but it had basically everything. So like you had James Mason looking like he was really playing, like really like really playing that organ, you know, when he plays Takata and Fugue, um, and and other parts. And it also makes me think of uh, I always think of you when you think of um, d- like Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Man's Chest, right, and. You have Captain, uh, not, the, uh, uh, Davy Jones. Davy Jones. And he yeah. has his organ. That's a, it's a very important, um, piece to his character. You know, both these And char- he plays it with his beard, just. And both of these characters are sort of agents of death, and they're both, you know, they have this great, like, sadness about both of them. You know, Captain Nemo mm-hmm. lost his, lost his, you know, wife and son, and, you know, Davy Jones has a lot of a lot of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Davy Jones has got some stuff. He's got some like, yeah, but you know, who knows? We might talk about that later. Ooh, wink. Hint, hint. 
Nudge. Um, <laughs> uh, but just every level on the pr- production value end of things, this is a top-notch production. Like, when you look at, like, the, the I love, particularly, I love the miniature shots of the Nautilus underwater, and you see, like, little, like, yes. animated, animated bubbles as it's, go- as it's going through. It just looks, it's beautiful. E- even if you know, like, okay, that's a model, this is, okay, th- they're only built this piece, or I can clearly tell this was shot in a pool inside the studio. You could, <laughs> Walt, Walt was not, was not, like, kidding around with this movie, like, um, I have to talk about the um, the squid fight in this movie. Perhaps the most famous scene. I was gonna say, yeah, it's it's one of the most legendary things. I mean, they put it on the cover. Like I have the Blu-ray in my hand, obviously. Uh, you know, and one of the first images outside of James, uh, uh, Kirk Douglas and uh, James Mason. Uh, James Mason, thank you. Um, is the Nautilus being attacked by uh, the giant squid? Yeah, they they they're they're clearly aware. It's a big thing. Yeah, like it, it is. It is a big scene. It's a big scene in in the novel, even though it's a little different in the novel. But big scene. They were originally. It was originally going to be very different. They had a very different vision of that scene. But the problem was, it looked like garbage. I showed you. I think I showed you the. Um, they. It's infamously called the sunset squid fight. It's. It's essentially like the same scene, more or less, but it's set in the day, and. Uh, Everything's on full display, especially the the, 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 the giant squid puppet um, with its beak constantly pushing out and like the tentacles being puppeteered off camera. Um, and there's there's no hiding anything with that. That's why like so, like especially with these days with like CGI and like motion capture created characters, you know, going back to Davy Jones, one of the big reasons why you know that special effect from 2000. And what, three, four, no, 2005-ish, somewhere around there? Well, they probably worked on the effects in 2005, you know, on some level. Point is, the reason that still looks as amazing as it does to this day is a lot of it is also lighting in effect. Like, if you, like, you have to light things a certain way, and you have to show things a certain way, because, you know, especially with more fantastical elements or, you know, practical CGI, whatever, because if you don't, then that's going to suspend that's going to take suspension of disbelief away for the audience. They're going to look at it and go, this is, this is kind of stupid. isn't it, this is clearly fake. (laughs) This is clearly, this is clearly not real. And so, um, they redid it. Um, it's in the, it's in the dark and it's in the rain. There's some masking, there's some lighting and it worked out a lot better. (laughs) It's way better. And I want to put this perspective too. This film came out like, 1954. You know what Walt Disney was working on in 1954? Little thing you might have heard of it. It's called Disneyland. It, it's 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 not even done yet, though. Honestly, they're still working on it. But one day, um. <laughs> as he said, Disney- we'll see. We'll see what happens. It might be a big thing. Who knows? Well, and if that it, it, imagine if Twenty Thousand Leagues had failed, and if Disneyland mm. like that could have like I mean, Walt had a lot of like big risks like that throughout his career. But, like, this was an especially big one because he had two mega projects like Disneyland going into pretty much totally unprecedented territory. And then a big budget movie like 20,000 Leagues. Oh, boy. He's he was constantly like just he was he just seems like he was always doing something, too, which on one hand is like exciting. But on another hand, it's like 
I hope he just took a break every now and then, <laughs> just like like sat on a porch, had a had had a had some, had a drink or something, or some like not even like alcohol, just like water or something. See, I think about um, BoJack Horseman. I always go back to that show, and I think about Mr. Peanut Butter's lawyer, um, who has to always hear about Mr. Peanut Butter's ideas. And then there was one point where he thought he was Mr. Peanut Butter was done. And Mr. Peanut Butter's like, oh, I had another idea. And he's like, no, I can't do this. I can't do this again. <laughs> and he was being taken away by his, from his son. And I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> uh, Slow down. <laughs> no. I can't catch up. But needless to say, and did, I mean, like I said, a lot of the people that I'm, some of the people that I'm mentioning, like, there's like, uh, there were like a ton of people from like other studios because Walt's studio, I mean, there was other live action things um, that Disney had done. Like, they did a little Song of the South and, like, of course, Treasure Island. But, like, Disney wasn't a live action studio. I think they had to build other additional, like, sound stages for this movie specifically because this was, the, this was a huge production undertaking for an, uh, an otherwise just animated studio. Right. And so just... It's like it's kind of funny to think that there are because when, when at least from when you think of Disney, you think of at least I do animation. You think of all their like all the animated classics that Disney has done. I admittedly rarely ever think about the live action ones, probably outside of Mary Poppins. That's a big which one, I, which obviously is a huge one, and I, in this Twenty Thousand Leagues. But like um, a lot of the other ones, I don't necessarily not to again not to you know speak to the quality of them. I just don't think about them. The only one I really think about sometimes is Old Yeller, and mm-hmm. that's because that's literally because of the ending. And I, I think yeah, that's like I've never even seen it, so I, but I know how it ends, which is kind of messed up. It, yeah, it, it's it's I, I do want to pick it up on, on Blu-ray at at some point just to own it, but you know. But I will say, like, just a side note, like it is cool. Like if you are like like if you are a Disney Movie Club fan and you and you're part of that, you know, that they do release some of those movies on Blu-ray yes. for, like, the exclusive. And, again, they don't really have special features. It's just the movie. But that is a way that you can get 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. That's, like, the third time we've mentioned this. But it's it's worth it. It actually looks really good on Blu-ray. So No, no it, it really does. Um, before we get to, like, the cast and stuff, I want to give a shout-out. Uh, Paul J. Smith did the score for this movie incredible score absolutely good top to bottom great production but also as far as a great production walt disney really got some headliner hollywood hollywood actors mm-hmm. like i mean you gotta you gotta start with you know i i believe you have to start with kirk douglas no one wears a striped a striped shirt quite like kirk douglas i'll just say that first of all second of all no one's as charming at least that I can think of at the moment, as Kirk Douglas. As far as the, yes, as far as the movie presence is concerned, yes. And and no one uh, can swear by their tattoo <laughs> as much as Kirk. Douglas. I love "Whale of a Tale." That is one of my favorite Disney songs. It's such a like catchy tune. It's almost like a like a because you know like sea shanties become like super popular lately. <laughs> I'm like, where's that? Where's the TikTok of someone going? I swear by my tattoo. It yeah. was Harpoon Hatta. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying, anyone that does TikTok that listens to this, can you just, it's just, I'm passing the idea on to you. You don't even have to credit this. Well, maybe shit, but <laughs> you don't have to if you don't want to. 
but yeah, that, that it's it's the one song. Um, and they when they interviewed Kirk Douglas for the documentary, he was talking about a story where he was friends with Frank Sinatra. He's like, hey, I, I got a record. How about I give you all of my records for all of your records? And of course, Frank Sinatra, you know, legendary legendary yeah. singer. Yeah, Kirk Douglas, <laughs> one record, one song. <laughs> <laughs> which is pretty is pretty funny but also too um before i get to the actors i just want to bring this up like richard fleischer directed this and richard fleischer uh for those of you who don't know is a director he worked for a very long time passed away in 2006 done a number of movies uh, including the original dr doolittle um just a weird fun fact he was given this assignment by walt disney and this is significant because Richard Flesher is the son of Max Flesher, who was one of Disney's biggest rivals during that golden age of, like, just animation. The Flesher brothers did stuff, you know, Popeye, Betty Boop, the Superman uh, cartoons. Mm-hmm. They, they, didn't, the Flesher brothers, didn't they actually, like, more or less pioneer, like, rotoscope? They pioneered, uh, they pioneered rotoscope. They were, they were huge. And they had some really cool techniques, too, um, but... Yeah, like it, it was. It was. It's an interesting. Um, it was interesting that Walt Walt chose him for this project. The Fleischer legacy went to Disney. The Fleischer legacy went to Disney. But in addition to Kirk Douglas, we have to talk about the the vo- the the man himself. Oh, he's got a beard, and his name is his name is James Mason. He was also a North by Northwest. He narrated a Chaplin, uh, Charlie Chaplin documentary called Unknown Chaplin. And he was in other movies as well. <laughs> this, you probably will not be surprised with this all. This is the only movie of his I've seen. <laughs> Wait, you've never seen North by Northwest? Nope. That's surprising. Dude, good thing we're doing that at some point with another movie <laughs> that I will not mention in the future. Mm-hmm. It, it's, I, I I don't think it's that surprising, but that's because it's me. <laughs> I am a I'm a little I'm a I'm a little shocked, but that's okay. It it's just, just mean, a little shocked. It just means you get to experience North by Northwest for the first time, which is something I I envy you. And you know, what? at least I I mean I've experienced Hitchcock movies. This is true. I've seen a few. Of, I've seen quite a few of them. North by Northwest. But that's is, one. I, that's that's top, one I have not. And I love Cary Grant too. So I mean, I don't know what's going on. It's top tier. But it's top tier. It's got everything. It's got the wrong man Hitchcock trope. It's got a blonde. It's got a Hitchcock cameo. It's got just all these Joey, great Joey, things. Joey, it's got everything. Joey, Joey. 20,000 leagues. Yeah. But James <laughs> 20, Mason. 20,000 leagues. He may not be as, as far as um, ethnicity and race. Uh, the choice to play Nemo that you would have associated. However, he is excellent in the role as Captain Nemo. Though, fun fact, the Nemo character... Um, at least in the book, like in the original because book. the in the original book, uh, Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea, he's not an he's not necessarily an established character. He's more of like a mysterious character that because the book is um, narrated by Anorax and from his perspective and everything. So that's why even like in the movie, you sort of like Anorax narrates the movie and like his writing in his journal yeah. and stuff. So. Um, so that's obviously like they do that in a lot of I think book adaptations where like the the characters like sort of writing the book because it's from their perspective, right? Um, and so with Nemo, it's sort of like they don't outright say it because I think the the editor 
uh, for for Jules Verne, sort of wanted because they wanted to have more of a commercial appeal. So uh, I imagine Jules Verne was actually writing about the frustrations of like the Russian Empire and like you know everything that was going on at the time he was writing the book. Um, but uh, they didn't really name that. So then when the sequel came out, The Mysterious Island, where they actually dived into Nemo's past and how he like sort of came to be what he ended up being, um, they actually specifically identified him as uh, East Indian or Muslim, I believe. Mm-hmm. And um, they made the sort of mysterious enemy of his the British Empire. So... Um, in this, so in this movie, I feel like they sort of go for the 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 original book's intent by making him more mysterious. They 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 don't again they don't really go too much into who Nemo is, but they sort of keep that mysteriousness. But that's kind of like my favorite part about these types of movies. It's like the mystery of it all. Yeah, I love I love James Mason in this movie. I think it's like if you didn't, if he's you, very good. If you didn't cast this part well, the movie would have failed. And he's such a he's he's such a presence. Like like when he comes on to screen, like you feel it. You know what I mean? Like yes. He, like like when I think of like Kirk Douglas, you know, he's so charming and he's so fun and 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 you know exciting to see him. Like he he, he takes over the scene. He's a scene stealer. But then when James Mason as Nemo comes on, like he's, he's kind of stoic and he's like really mysterious. Like you're really intrigued by him when he shows up like you're like you can't take your eye off him even when like they're eating dinner and he's just like you know talking about how all the food was you know salvaged or you know captured from the sea um and it's just i don't know there's just something like really mesmerizing like you understand why anorax is sort of enamored with him when they first meet him yeah like every every movement he wears the costumes well like and that he wears that turtleneck man it's like talking about a superhero honestly like honestly i feel like half the battle with a lot of superheroes is can you wear the costume well can i believe that you are a superhero and i believe that james mason is captain nemo um like when he wears that blue jacket or he has like the turtleneck he's perfect i love some of his line deliveries are so good too like when he reads aranax's book he's like your book is brilliant but it lacks scope (laughs) <laughs> but yeah he's he's honest man <laughs> he, yeah and and you know what the other thing with his character too is that if you had if you removed the disney label from this movie and if you didn't know that this was incorporated into their some of their parks and whatnot i don't know if you would have known this was a disney movie because this is about a man who is seeking revenge against the against these against these horrible like people who enslave other human beings and he's like just trying to destroy them and like i'm like man disney would never make a movie like that today <laughs> under the disney no. name like what no <laughs> like when's the last time outside of maybe like pirates of the caribbean that they've even touched the adventure genre yeah i mean there's some things that are like diet adventure i want to say you, yeah. you know <laughs> like like they get close without getting too close, you know, and that and that's another, th- yeah, that, that that's a whole other conversation that's as a whole well, other thing, other yeah. thing. But also, I want to talk about the other two members of our of our very male cast. That's, that's the other thing with this movie is that outside, it's of, all dudes outside of the the ladies that um, Kirk Douglas found himself with, uh, or as, Esmeralda, or Esmeralda the Seal. Uh, the the female presence in this movie is quite lacking, but we do have 
Paul Lucas, Academy Award winning actor Paul Lucas, and just such an iconic movie movie actor, uh, Peter Laurie. Oh, yes. I was there on set all the time. You prompted this, by the way. <laughs> I did. I did. But it, it's it's so no, funny, too. Every time I was on set with Esmeralda, she would try to eat my shoe. I was very upset by it. You despise me, <laughs> don't you, Esmeralda? <laughs> every time you come up to me and you try to eat my shoe, do you think I'm happy about it? No, <laughs> but uh, I, the, the, they the, the way that like Richard Flesher and and Kirk Douglas talk about Peter Laurie, like he seemed like a really great guy to be on set with, and he had a great sense of humor. Like there there are some great like behind the scenes like you know like Super A footage or whatever of like him getting his hair trimmed or whatever, and he's just like shaking his <laughs> head, shaking his head that's not like it's kind of shaved. <laughs> or um like they they have a great sense of humor about about it like. They talk on, like, one of the Disney, like, because Disney did a lot of TV promotions for things. And when he was promoting the movie, he's like, you know, uh, the squid is the role that Peter Lorre usually has. <laughs> <laughs> Fact. And also, just to, you know, follow up from the last one, this is not my first Peter Lorre movie. There you go. Just to make you feel better. I, f- I feel good about that. That makes more, that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> That ma- that makes uh, that makes a lot of sense, but all, mm-hmm. you know, and the, and the Paul Lucas, um, Paul Lucas is is very good in the, in this movie. Um, I know Richard Fletcher. T- I don't. Yeah, I don't know much about Paul Lucas as much as you do. I think because like I know him obviously from this, but I don't know him from much else. <laughs> well, I'm about to connect this to another Hitchcock movie, actually. <laughs> uh, and that, that is uh, the criteria. Uh, it's a Criterion release. The Lady Vanishes. Uh, he's in that oh, movie. Okay. Um, and this was movie was later on in his career, and he kind of forgot his lines in a number of moments, and he got angry on on set, you know, and mm-hmm. it, it was kind of it's kind of an upsetting thing, you know, to, to think about that. But like Richard Flesher said, like I can't imagine anybody else in that role. Um, like he, I think he plays that well. It's it's kind of a case of where I don't want to call him the audience POV, but he is sort of like he is sort of the lens that we see like Nemo from. In a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah. Because, I mean, like I said, he the, that character narrates the book, and so it just makes sense that they would have him be the central character of the movie, or at least the character that narrates the movie. Yeah. As, as, far, as far as the cast, the cast is A-plus, top-tier Hollywood cast. I mean, it's so... It, it is so good. And what also helps, too, is that this is, like, a grand, like, epic adventure with, like, the submarines. They're going in the ocean. They're going in the depths. But it's able to kept be kept intimate because it doesn't have eight thousand characters. Right. It's very much set, and I think that's incredibly appropriate because I mean the whole the whole plot more or less outside of you know these characters sort of being mesmerized and sort of scared in a lot of ways of Captain Nemo and the Nautilus. But it's also about three three guys who are sort of unfortunately stuck. And prisoners in this lifestyle, the secret lifestyle that Nemo has, and so you don't want to like overcrowd it. So you gotta like kind of there's a there's somewhat of a level of claustrophobia that kind of comes with it. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. As vast as vast as the ocean is, they can't really get anywhere. And so, like, it's almost liberating when they have scenes, like, obviously for Ned Land, too, who's, like, the character that wants to get away. There's, like, scenes where um, they're underwater, and so him and uh, Peter Lorre are, you know, like, finding treasure elsewhere, or when they get to the island, obviously, 
um, and there's a bunch of cannibals there, and obviously Ned Land's, Ned Land's like, I, I don't, shh, come on, I got this, I know what I'm doing, I'm Ned Land, hey! <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, it doesn't work out for him. But I also, uh, actually, I'm glad you brought that up, because going off of, like, adventure movies, I think part of the problem, like, with an adventure movie is a lot of the time you have white people going into other places let, let's say yeah and especially with this movie with the the cannibals and you're just like mm. <laughs> you know <laughs> and i think that that, yeah. that is part of the problem with an adventure thing because a ba- even back in 19, 1954 like compared to now we know a lot more now than we did back then and it's that yes. that, that sense of knowledge that kind of that kind of, i feel like kind of prevents certain adventure movies from being happen from happening or the adventure movie genre in general. Like we're still trying to get an Indiana Jones movie and I don't know what that's going to look like. No. I mean, the fourth one had to go to outer space. They had to get aliens. And even then they, yeah. they, they incorporated some like, you know, indigenous people, indigenous elements into the, into the story. And that can have its own set of own set of issues, which we're not the most qualified people to talk about. But I felt like it needed to be brought up, um, and I think that's part of the reason why this movie and other adventure movies can be so appealing to especially young boys, is because you don't know a lot about the world, and then when you see people going around the world and having to fight giant squids, or like, finding buried treasure, and like, oh, taking on cannibals, like, that idea just seems like, oh my gosh, I would love to go out in like a submarine with this crazy guy who's just ramming boats into, you know, things and all that. <laughs> And it's just, there are a lot, especially in a modern sense, there are a lot of factors that definitely come into play with preventing that sort of thing. And we, we talked about that even with Atlantis, which came out in 2001. And, you know, again, that, that sort of brings up a lot of things that, you know, are questionable. And so... Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There, there, de- there are definitely a few things I want to bring up. Uh, in addition, Peter Ellenshaw did the matte paintings on this film, and for those who don't know what like a matte painting is, like especially in, tr- in the traditional, especially in the traditional sense, um, there's like a piece of glass, and say you don't have time to build a castle, right? You don't have time to build a castle, but you want to paint a castle in the background. So when you watch a lot of like old movies and you see the background for certain things, like when you when they're trying to go to Bargo Pass. In Dracula, that's like a that's like a painting, mm. if I'm not mistaken. Like yeah. that that's a painting. Or in Twenty Thousand Leagues, when they're going to Volcania, um, Captain Nemo's you know island, you, it's a that's a map painting as well. Or like when yeah. you see the beginning of the movie, there's a whole de- harbor of ships, and it's so meticulously done. That's Peter Allen Shaw's work at play. He also did the map painting work for um for Mary Poppins, and that work is incredibly beautiful. So. Uh, beautifully done have to give him uh, him a shout out but also this movie is introduced by a book <laughs> <laughs> it's it's the classic disney disney uh thing where like a lot of their older movies would, would start off with a storybook and then we would just go straight into it and it feels like a much more condensed version of like uh like when we were watching beauty and the beast and how like they were like listen it's a fantasy man just don't think too hard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's like, like this is like this is this is this is not real. It's a book. I almost feel like they should have done that for The Martian because I feel like so many people are like, when did this happen? It never did. 
Fun fact. <laughs> it never happened. It's fake. <laughs> but but no, it's like on that note too. It's like we're talking about like adventure stuff. I think the best types of adventure stuff that you can sort of not like. To, I, that you can still do today, I think, are movies like space exploration, obviously, or underwater exploration, because there's so much about those things that even now we still don't know. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of those instances, you don't have to worry about, you know, making stupid caricatures of indigenous people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is a big thing that, you know, because so many adventure movies go to, like, other locations, which, you know, is, is exciting, but, again, could lead to that bad choice and it's one of those things where it's especially like a product of that time because you know like i think about something like king kong i feel like i bring it up every week but it's it's relevant because you're going to this far off this far off place and i think about a story that uh ray harryhausen told where he tried like they mentioned like oh it's the language of the neas islanders and when ray harryhausen tried to pull that somewhere they were like what the hell are you talking about (laughs) <laughs> that's not that that's a bunch of baloney so it could be incredibly like problematic where you, where you create those perceptions and and you go wait a minute wait a minute this this isn't real that was just in a movie <laughs> <laughs> guys it didn't happen uh, but ultimate <laughs> but ultimate like and also too uh, I, I i it's crazy that we didn't mention that much of the underwater photography that's like some of the stuff they do is pretty crazy like especially for that time period. I mean, they they shot this um, on, in very clear waters, but they had to deal with like the silt that was at the bottom of the ocean. So their very heavy suits were stomping, and all the silt would come up, and they could only shoot a few minutes at a time because it took an mm-hmm. incredibly long time to put on their diving the diving gear that they wear in this movie. It's so heavy, so cumbersome. They have emergency drills. And, um, one of the interesting things too, is that they did like a safety demonstration and all different like hand signals. And the last one was just a shrug, which they said was the one that was used the most. They're like, what the hell is going on? I don't know where I'm supposed to be. It's like, I don't like, did you put the marker tape down? We can't. Oh, can you try? (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, they, they talk that there's all, all sorts of like, you know, dangers with shooting in the water obviously weather not cooperating i mean there's all sorts of animals like there's something that could eat you or take a nibble out of you over there like there's like a shark or something you know or something mm-hmm. um but it also adds to it too when you're watching this color widescreen movie and you see like you see sea turtles you see eels you see the fish of the sea you know you see all sea <laughs> <laughs> But uh, no, I think <laughs> 20,000, just to sort of like put a cap on it, 20,000 Leagues is just one of the best movie, movies of its kind. It is a really fun adventure, adventure prison break story with beautiful production design, beautiful visual effects that are still so mesmerizing to look at. A top notch cast of mostly dudes and a female seal. <laughs> and. <laughs> Yeah, um, but it, um, especially these days, it's also just a great movie because it takes you on. It takes you on an adventure, which you know. I mean, I know we, by this point we're we're a lot more adjusted, I think, to the way the world with the pandemic and everything. But even so, um, it's still nice to have movies like Twenty Thousand Leagues that sort of take you away for a second, and you go on this undersea adventure with 
an eccentric and mysterious captain at the helm and an incredibly charming, you know, harpooner trying to escape, you know. So it's it's movies like this that, especially these days, have been really helpful, at least for me, you know, and just like just taking your mind off things. So And I'm I'm glad we, we can both we can both appreciate um appreciate this movie. Um like also just a weird shout out too. Uh, the first things Allison ever gave me were, were 20,000 Leagues related. She gave me a nice plate and a coaster. So shout out to Allison. I'm so surprised you didn't put a ring on it after that. I know. <laughs> like, I, I just, I just, like, I, I think right, I, when, she, right I, when that comes up, you drop down to of, me. Like, that was like five years ago, which is wild. Like, there are a lot of moments where I'm like, yeah, she's the one. Yeah, this is this is this is what's gonna be. This, this is this is this is working out. Wow. And, <laughs> this is actually really good. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, we are we are gonna we are gonna put on our diving suits and um, submerge for a bit. And uh, when we come back, we may or may not uh, have a trident. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Two Dudes, One Double Feature. In our last segment, we hopped into a submarine and traveled with a mysterious captain 20,000 leagues under the sea. But during this adventure, we may have visited a little location called Atlantis. And the king of Atlantis has his own movie. And it is the 2018 superhero film Aquaman. Don't you? I, I I just I know you I know you had a plan. I just saw your face and I'm like, mm, mm. <laughs> just go ahead. Just, just, uh, just go ahead. Dolph Lundgren looks weird with ah! red hair. I said it. I said it. John! I said it. I will not take it back. John! How could you say that? I'm okay. I hope so. I really hope so. <laughs> anyway, Aquaman. So th- this is a bit of a weird one, I think, to talk about. Like, I don't imagine any like of all the movies we've talked about. I don't imagine. I mean, maybe they would have expected us to talk about this at some point, but this isn't a movie you imagine a lot. At least not in my area. You imagine a lot of people want to talk about unless they go. They made an Aquaman movie? Or or people go, yeah, it was fine, and then they go to talk about the highs and lows of the DCEU. Yeah, which we'll probably do at some point. But if you're talking to us, especially me, there's going to be a lot of gushing. There's going to be a lot of like, oh my god, this movie. Good gravy, they did that. Um, so yeah, 
it's just it i'll just say first and foremost it's so weird in general that not only does an aquaman movie exist especially given his reputation and like you know pop culture and everything but also that it's a movie that exists um was somewhat you know successful like critically not entirely but made a billion dollars and it was more successful than like a few of the batman and superman movies <laughs> like aquaman of all characters it it's exciting to me but like i'm surprised for others it was like wow i want to see this you know it, it, it really is kind of a wild thing because if you had asked me like you know a year or so before the movie came out i i would have told you i would have told you maybe like 700 million dollars maybe you know, just just thinking maybe it would grow something similar to like a Thor movie mm. or whatever, something like that. But yeah, this thing made a billion, billion with a B, billion dollars. with a B dollars. It was a huge success. They're making a second one. They were gonna make a spinoff with uh, the Trench, which of the two that the two DC movies they canceled. That's the one I admittedly less care about, but still like the, the point is the movie was successful enough to to warrant these conversations and to warrant an entire sequel being made and like what makes it crazier too like i said the reputation that aquaman has for many people just because of like jokes on family guy or you know adult swim or any of these other like uh you know things aquaman for you know the public perception is like quote unquote the worst superhero of all time He's like the, the the silliest one, like the silliest one, the goofiest. You know, he's just a, a step above the Wonder Twins. And listen, if they make a Wonder Twins movie, I'm gonna see it. I'm the first in line. I'm, like, I'm like, looking at my, <laughs> I'm looking at my Wonder Twins pops right now, and I proudly own them. I want listen. If there is not a scene in this in in a, in a Wonder Twins movie where you know one of them turns into like a giant like majestic um you know, animal of some sort, and the other one just turns into, like, like a bucket of water. I'm going to be a little bit disappointed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just a little bit. But no, Aquaman, like, when you think of Aquaman, even Jason Momoa said this when he was offered the role, because, like, obviously, um, he got the role for Batman v Superman from Zack Snyder. And uh, he was like, you want me to play that? Because, like, the first thing you think of is, like, a blonde white dude, not Jason Momoa. <laughs> And so it's just it was it's a bit weird, but the thing is, thing is, this is a, this is maybe a hot take depending on who's listening to this. Aquaman's awesome. Yeah, Aquaman is amazing. Like, and silliness even included. Like, it's he's just such a great character. Like, going from just an aesthetics point of view, he's um, or just like a powers. Just talking about like the surface level stuff. Um, he has super strength. He is bulletproof. He can leap incredibly long distances. Um, and, of course, when he's underwater, he can swim as fast as, as pretty much Superman can fly. He can command uh, through aqua telepathy, as it's called in the, in the comics. Yes, it's silly, but that's Aquaman for you. Um, he uses aqua telepathy. The, just a reminder, these books are written for children in a yes. lot of instances. Yes. Like, Children. and I think, I think, I think people forget about that. And, and if you do enjoy, enjoy them, I'm not saying that that's a judgment thing because we enjoy a lot of that stuff too. But I, I think it's so easy to, for, like, we just had an R-rated Justice League movie that was four hours long. Yes. And we, we thought it was fine. Yeah, we thought it was fine. And I'm like, 
but 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 I I I want to have the silly movie where Aquaman talks to his ocean buddies. Like, there's literally a like. Where's the scene when Aquaman goes inside of a, a whale's mouth because of Pinocchio and and like talks to it for a hot second? Where's that scene? It's in this movie. I love that. I love that. It's so good. But like, just again, just talking about like like the surface level stuff. Like he has all these abilities and all these abilities underwater. He's also the king of more or less 70% of the earth. So he's got the most powerful like dynasty, if that's anything that you care about. Um, but on top of that, like, yeah, like he is a character that is inherently silly. Like you, you look at like the image of him riding on a seahorse is kind of silly but you know what this movie said yeah we know what's the point what's the problem let's just do that like what's why can't he ride a seahorse why can't they talk underwater like what like where's the problem and, here and can we also say too like his origin like with his parents it feels like a lifetime movie like soap opera <laughs> thing in the most beautiful way like if Lifetime like had produced a movie about like a fish lady ending up with Boba Fett, it would look like that. And it would be beautiful, and then it would have great action scenes that feature several moments of Kool Aid Man entry uh, <laughs> with uh, Atlanteans in sweet outfits. Um, but no, this movie. It's just it's it's so insane to me to think that a movie like this even exists, and I think we have to start off without a doubt with James Wan mm. because and I've always and I've always argued this and I might have said it even here on the podcast but I always think horror movie directors are probably some of the best people when it comes to like making blockbuster films because you know a there's obviously a budget discrepancy because they're so used to working on low budgets but they know how to make amazing looking cinema on such a low budget you know using great atmosphere using uh camera dynamic camera movements uh set design like and and especially in horror there's a there's a a sense of exaggerated drama and a sense of like sort of heightened reality in a lot of horror films that sort of lends itself pretty well to a lot of superhero properties as well and so james wan who's mostly known for like the conjuring movies saw uh, and a few other little things here and there to have him do even even like when he did Fast and the Furious Seven. L long story short, I just think James Wan was a perfect fit for a property like Aquaman, especially. Yeah, I I I agree a hundred percent. I mean, I also think about like in a different sense too. Like I think about um, I think about Adam Wingard on Godzilla Godzilla versus exactly Kong, exactly or, or you know with Godzilla King the monsters. You know the, these filmmakers. They they're able to you know pre present mood and atmosphere in a lot of the, these bigger you know these big budget things because they're so used to doing it on like a shoestring budget. Peter Jackson, yes, Peter Jackson, who was brought up with his own style of horror films, would go on to make Lord of the Rings. I mean, if there's if there's any evidence to display that you know these types of movies work best from horror directors, there you go. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the that's the ultimate that's the ultimate case right there. It really is. You know, Aqu this was man. I think the best way I could describe this, like, I literally saw this as a Saturday matinee. I think I saw I think I saw it in IMAX too. Oh, lucky! And it was well, you know, it was the AMC IMAX, so it wasn't like true IMAX, but it was still a lot of fun. 
it it's literally like the best Saturday matinee kind of thing you can get. <laughs> Be- like, like it. Oh, it's man. just because it, and this is something we both more or less said. I think you said it especially. Um, this is a Saturday morning cartoon, in yep. like the purest, like most wonderful way. Because when we like, when I think of my like sort of beginnings of my love for these types of characters, like superheroes, immediately go to Saturday morning cartoons. You know, like the Batman animated series, or the Spider-Man cartoon, or X-Men, or Justice League, Superman, like any of those shows from like the 90s or earlier. Or for me, uh, especially Super Friends. Super Friends. Super Friends is a big one. That's a, bi- <laughs> that's a big one. Or even like if you want to talk about like, you know, uh, some like Toon Disney stuff, like Darkwing Duck was kind of like a big, uh, you know, example of that as well. Just these these characters that work, you know, really well as Saturday morning cartoons, but also... You know, shows aimed for children, again. Um, and when you watch a movie that makes... Like, that's the best... Like, when a blockbuster, especially a movie like Aquaman or, like, a superhero movie, um, sort of brings that kid in you alive again. Like, like yeah. when we watch Pacific Rim, for example, that's another one that sort of does that. Like, Aquaman, I was giddy the entire time watching this movie, and I still get giddy when I watch it. <laughs> And I was laughing the whole way, not not because, like, the movie is, like, so bad it's good, but, like, it, it was just so joyous, and, like, the movie clearly knew what it was doing. It's And, and, and the ironic thing is, it's set in the DCEU. <laughs> I will say, again, I will say, again, if, 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 if the Snyder aesthetic is your bag... Mm-hmm. Much respect to you, and and also also um, to take a to take a page out of your book as well. Um, people got paid, <laughs> you know, yeah. livelihoods. That's beautiful. Um, you know, and and you know what? I'll say this much about Zack Snyder: people seem to like working for him. Like like think about Russell Crowe. Just to talk about Man of Steel for a hot second, Russell Crowe outside because like obviously he's going to be in Thor: Love and Thunder as we know. Um, uh, Russell Crowe hasn't really done superhero movies because i guess he just doesn't want to but then Zack snyder convinced him to be jor-el in man of steel and he's arguably one of the best parts of that whole movie if not you know overstaying his welcome a bit but that's a personal issue with it um but the point is like just from from a personal perspective from us you know especially those earlier entries the dceu just didn't like the one thing it really lacked was a sense of hope and joy which is, I think, almost essential with a lot of superhero movies. And I think when Wonder Woman came out, it sort of shifted things a little bit, because at that point, Warner Brothers was like... Because that was the first real actual success, probably since The Dark Knight, that Warner Brothers had with a DC adaptation. Well, I mean, like, this to say, like, Batman v Superman made money, but it was also... I'm sure if you're a WB investor and you had Batman and Superman your movie... I'd be mad that the movie didn't make at least a billion dollars, and the movie was critically panned. It was, it was, it, in a lot of ways, it was an uphill battle. Like, it was an uphill, uh, it was an uphill battle, you know. Yeah. And Wonder Woman, Wonder Woman was the one, is the one where if you talk to people, they'll go, "I like that one." Yeah. That's the first one of these that I liked. Yeah. Like it was like, and as a DC fan, like it was sort of euphoric, especially because I've been wanting a Wonder Woman movie for a long time. But then in comes Aquaman, and. Not only does it just like completely like change change everything, or at least um, with its movie specifically, but 
it could have if if it was any other filmmaker or any other like period of the DC EU era, they would have just tried to make them like they would have tried to make it quote unquote cool. You know what I mean? Like that's part mm-hmm. of the reason why Jason Momoa was cast because you know when you think of Jason Momoa, you think of Khal Drogo or when he was Conan the Barbarian, like these like strong, silent, stoic characters that they probably would have wanted to implement with Aquaman. Um, though I will admit that he was a little bit more fun in Justice League, but he still came off more like angsty and and, and angry. But then when you see him in in Aquaman in the actual Aquaman movie, he's having an absolute blast. He shouts like Goofy at one point. He does, and it's beautiful. Like live action Goofy movie with Jason Momoa when <laughs> can can uh, please <laughs> Disney. We're talking to you directly now. Kind of like how earlier, a couple episodes ago, we we addressed Tom Brady at Letterboxd. This is talking directly to Disney. <laughs> <laughs> this is a matter of, of, of greater importance, I would argue. Yes, it is. Um, Jason Momoa, Goofy, make it happen. Just just make it, ha- make it happen. I mean, isn't he supposed to be doing a Frosty the Snowman movie? That was a fake. That was a fake out. Was it a f- that was a fake out because of the Ray Fisher situation. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Like, Jason Momoa came, wow. actually came out and said, why would you make some fake announcement? Like, like I will say... Was, I, this, recent, was this recent that they said this? Because it, it was... They said this... Um, it was around the time the mo- it was announced. I think they're still technically planning on doing a Frosty movie, but Jason Momoa is not in it. So he's not part of it. Okay. Yeah, so they wanted to sort of distract from the Ray Fisher stuff. So, but WB said... <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Wow, that is man. WB is just nice job. <laughs> that is holy moly. Yeah, isn't that crazy? But no, Jason. This is a. It's amazing to see a movie like this work because, like, Jason Momoa again comes off so different than like anything else. It makes me think of like uh, Tashira Mifune a little bit when we were talking about him with Seven Samurai and how. A lot of other movies that you were telling me about, he's more stoic and more like strong. But then in um in Seven Samurai, he's completely different. That's a really great comparison, actually. I never would have thought of that. That was good. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Pat myself on the back, Dale. <laughs> but but no, like he he comes off so much different, and I think a lot of it is that because if you see him in interviews and like just like people talking about him, he seems like such a fun presence. And, like, you know, like, I remember, like, in one of the behind-the-scenes features when James Wan was doing his, like, presentation for the, you know, everyone at Warner Brothers for Aquaman and Jace Momoa comes out. The, instead of, like, giving him a handshake and being professional, he just goes right up and gives him a big old hug. And it's just, like, cuddling James Wan. And he sits on the chair and he's, like, and, like, they show this really great Ivan Reyes drawing of Aquaman and, like, all the characters in the movie. And he goes, yeah, I'm gonna be that fucking guy. <laughs> 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 You're, like... I love that. You love that energy, and it, it's so there when you see him in the movie. It's so good. Oh, my gosh. It's so good. Yeah, yeah he, he's definitely a big... Jason Momoa was a huge factor in... And also, he looks great in the costume. Yes! Like, oh, my God! This movie was ballsy enough to have a comic-accurate Aquaman suit. Respect. Respect, and it looks great. It, 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 looks, it, looks, fan, it looks fantastic. It's the goddamn cover of the Blu-ray. <laughs> <laughs> I also just love the um, just the whole costume design of this movie in general. Oh my god, is pretty 
is pretty fantastic. I think about like also I, I think about um Amber Heard's costume as Mira with like the jellyfish. Oh yeah, when it's like like the fl- like the floating behind her and stuff. With the, yeah, that's just really and cool. Just all, all the different armor. Oh, an Ocean Master looks fantastic. Like the full Ocean Master armor looks fantastic. It looks so good. Even like when they do like the mask part, and like obviously you can sort of tell it's a little bit fake, but it still kind of works because it like it fits within the whole aesthetic of everything. <clears throat> This movie, I I love the part where like you see you see Orm like turn around and he looks angry and he's in that helmet and like the camera is like a weird like Dutch angry sort of uh, like going. Call me I'm like Ocean Master. Dun dun dun. See now I'm now I'm envisioning an alternate reality where you're Orm and I'm the Dolph Lundgren character and you're like together we could be the two dudes. Dun 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 dun. dun. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god no it looks so good but i also got to give a special shout out to black manta because oh that yeah. suit which is all like no cgi outside of like some of the smoking effects around his helmet all practical mm-hmm. which is also a massive point i give to james wan for the way he um focused a lot on making practical sets and practical everything um, while also like having digitally a few di- fully digitally recreated things, even some of the stuff underwater is full set. So like, it's amazing. But when when we first see like obviously you know I think um, Yaya Abdul Mateen the second is great in that role. He's the, he's like the one factor as far as DC adaptations where he's in two great DC adaptations with this and the HBO Watchmen show. Um, but uh, he's he's. He's such a like a like a classic style like angry villain. It's like when you see him, like he's like like they're like here's your money. Like I don't want it. I want Aquaman. Like you know, <laughs> you don't get anyone saying those lines. And even <laughs> and like when you watch like the bonus features too, like you know, again with him, he's like having so much fun with it. And when he first arrives with that full like black manta suit on, it's so gorgeous. And, and again, like I said, I have so many memories of, of watching like the Super Friends and seeing like Black Manta, and to see that on the big screen with a big budget behind it, his big old red glowing eyes, and like call me Black Manta. Speaking of, <laughs> speaking of Black Manta, um, who's the guy? He, he's an Ant Man of the Wasp, and 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 Wandavision. He's sort of like the Atlantean. Oh, um, Randall Park. Is that? Randall Park. Mm-hmm. Listen, in those scenes, it felt like he was auditioning to be a member of Monarch. He's like, the, uh, the Atlantean is real. And his name, name is Aquaman. Aquaman. I'm telling you, Atlantis exists. Oh, my God. And that, like, <laughs> this, uh, again, it's cool when you see, like, MCU, DCU crossover type things. So it's cool to see him. Um, but that's also a very prominent character, um, Dr. Shin, I believe his name is, and he's got like this huge obsession with Atlantis, and so obviously with the, the end credit stinger we get in the movie, that sort of leads into the sequel, we're gonna get Black Manta and Dr. Shin teaming up to find Aquaman and Atlantis and stuff. Aquaman has some great parental figures in this film. I mean, first off, Tamora Morrison, Boba Fett himself, was handpicked by Jason Momoa. Because they asked him, who do you think would be a perfect fit to play your father in this movie? And Jace Momoa, like, he was he was born in Hawaii, raised in Iowa, 
And so, um, what's one thing I also really love too about this movie is that Jason Momoa was able to incorporate a lot of his own culture with like Hawaii and stuff into the movie. Um, and Tamora Morrison was a massive factor of that because, you know, there was a movie, I guess, I forget what it's called, but it was a movie that Tamora Morrison did back way back when that really clicked with Jason Momoa and he was like one of his favorite actors. So the, when he saw him on set, like, like he was super giddy about it. Like he was like, Oh my God, like this, this guy, I completely like, you know, I'm in love with, you know, I was playing my father in this movie. Like it's, and it's such great casting and they have such great chemistry too in the movie. Um, and they don't kill him. Yeah. They don't, they don't, they don't kill him. He's also great at just playing dads. Cause he's played Django Fett. Yeah. He's played Moana's dad. <laughs> he's, he's the perfect dad figure. So big shout out to Tamora Morrison. Um, huge shout out. Uh, Nicole Kidman. Second second movie we've talked about her in, and second DC movie we talked about her in. <laughs> Fun fact. No, no. Well, wait, third, third, wait, third. Paddington. Third, Paddington. 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 <laughs> Nicole Kidman, you're amazing. <laughs> so, uh, can we have Hugh Grant in Aquaman too? I would melt. I would die. <laughs> it's like, I'm done. <laughs> I, I don't care about anything else. I don't care about the Batman. No. I don't care about any no, of the Marvel movies. No. Aquaman but, but two. Does... Hugh Grant. <laughs> He does a musical number where it's like the the pit pity pat, but like, but like it's you're still underwater, dude. It's all water. <laughs> he's still got his umbrella though, and he's just like, listen to the rain on the. You're underwater. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> but like she's 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 fun in this, and uh, I, I I her costume when she's like in the. You know, in like what I like to call like the lost world. Yeah, of her, <laughs> uh, her costume in that is great. Oh my god! Like, cause she okay. So they have a hollow earth situation in this movie, which again, they like you got to give this movie props. Like, it's a long movie, but they go for it like every second they can. Like, anytime they get a chance, they're like, okay, we're gonna do this, uh, and, and okay, octopus playing the drums. Boom, got it. Uh, <laughs> hollow earth. Boom, got it. And so, like, when we first see her, um, she sort of, she has, like, her old, like, outfit on that we last saw her in, but she also uh, incorporated elements of, like, the trench monsters uh, to her outfit. So she has a helmet that looks like their head. She has a big old fin. And then of just, like, that dress that she wears at the end of the movie when she sort of, like, emerges and shows her presence again. Man. Gosh dang it. Nicole Kidman. (laughs) And then um, we got we have to talk about his his sort of like his other like father figure in a sense, um, Volko. Volko, played by Willem Dafoe, who was cut from the theatrical cut of Justice League, but then came back at least. So that's nice. <laughs> that 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 was that was nice. And you know what I was thinking about too with his character, like why his hair is in a bun in this one versus how it was like long hair in the in the Snyder cut. And I'm like James Wan was like. Hmm. We already have Jason Momoa and all these other people with like long hair, and it's gonna be it's gonna be a hell of a job to try to animate that. Yes. So let's just keep one guy's in a bun. Like like him and Patrick Wilson were like, let's just bun it, just bun it. And like even even like when when the, they have the Ring of Fire scene, and you look at the audience, like I, I guarantee all of them have their hair done up somehow, just to like they pro- yeah. make it so much easier on them, because that's that's a massive thing too, like. There's a lot, like, the majority of this movie takes place underwater. 
And so when you have scenes like that, you have to emulate certain things like motion. And so all the actors are in like harnesses and rigs. Cause like, obviously you can't like, unless you're James Cameron, who's doing that with avatar two, you can't really spend a whole hell of a lot of time underwater making these scenes because it's just impractical. Yeah. So for a lot of, main characters as well like they have their hair done up and pulled back somehow and um with willem dafoe's character especially though he does look cool in the cider cut i'll say that but I, I i am happy they were able to to still make him look cool in this but also give him a practical effect in that they don't have to worry about his hair so much um uh, but i'm laughing because <laughs> when we were watching this movie we were talking about uh, atlantean denim <laughs> Because, okay, so the original poster for Aquaman, right, um, is Jason Momoa with his 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 uh, BVS trident uh, in jeans, and it and, it, and it's Jason Momoa, I think himself, who mentioned it. But if you've ever worn wet denim, it's horrible. <laughs> it's absolutely horrible. So um, when you when we see that image of Jason Momoa wearing like jeans underwater we just sort of made up our own like like understanding of like listen this isn't just regular denim this is synthetic this is not so that this is this is organic pure beautifully made craft handcrafted atlantean denim <laughs> it is <laughs> <laughs> where it doesn't get wet it's not uncomfortable and you look sexy while you do this <laughs> yes <laughs> Um, but <laughs> going back to Willem Dafoe a little bit, um, he, he, this is sort of a different character for him. Cause like, he obviously like, like similar to Peter Laurie, Willem Dafoe plays a lot of like scary villain type characters. Like obviously in this genre, he was most famously known as uh green goblin in, in Sam Raimi Spider-Man movie. And so this is like the second time we see him in any kind of major comic book movie. But in this, he's playing what I think any other character would have like. Because the Vizier character that he plays in Volko, it makes me think of like Jafar, obviously from Aladdin. But he's not a villain in this movie. In fact, he's he's like the one guy that's like, we need to take down King Orm before he like messes everything up. Although he's still involved in like a coup, so he's he's still like in a sense backstabbing. His, like, <laughs> a little bit, yeah, a little, a little bit. bit. But he, he, he's a good. He, he is a Willem Defriend. As he, they he say. is like in John Wick, he is Willem Defriend this time. But he's so good, and we gotta give. I think I gotta like Patrick Wilson, right? Like he, like he might, like he just is like having so much fun in this like again classic villain type role. And, I don't know, I've always, like, I, like when I first started seeing some of Patrick Wilson's movies, I wasn't, like, massively into him, but as, as time has gone on, I've really, like, started to become more of a fan of his, of his work. Speaking of, like, a, a Zack Snyder movie, I really loved him as Night Owl. He's very good um, as Night Owl. As, as, as Dan Dr he's, he is fantastic, um, fantastic, just, I, I have an action figure of his Night Owl, um, somewhere, definitely just one of my favorite parts of that movie and he is fantastic in this he's like he's he so knows good exactly again this is the emphasis he knows exactly what kind of movie he's in like he looks so super ridiculously cheesy in that golden <laughs> armor where the room is completely white and like aquaman's just like oh i'm gonna give you an ass whooping and he's, and like, like, and he's like and like he, like like he just making ex these huge speeches and he's just like now that i see you for the first time i must admit 
I'm conflicted. (laughs) 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 And you know, you know if this movie was made in like the the late 90s or the early 2000s, maybe even sooner, that the roles would be switched. Like Jason Momoa would be Orm and Patrick Wilson would be Aquaman. Yeah. Because, you know, again, blonde white dude. (laughs) And then, you know, just the awful perception. But um, they switched it. Which obviously helps because Jason Momoa was already cast, but even so. And Patrick Wilson obviously has worked with James Wan four times. Because on Insidious 1 and 2, yeah, Insidious 1 and 2 and Conjuring 1 and 2, so four times he's worked with them. Yeah, I'm just trying to think of other stuff. Like, Amber Amber Heard's in this movie. Amber, she's, you know, she's solid. Um, and she's she, fine. She, she does, this, like, I will say this, Mira is such an important character especially to Aquaman, but also just like DC in general. She she becomes a member of the Justice League, especially in the recent comics, and she's in a lot of ways more powerful than Aquaman because she can actually manipulate water. I, I Again, I, I think about the Snyder, the Snyder cut. I think about the scene with Steppenwolf. And she like pulls she, out, yeah. Pulls out the, oh my gosh. Like, that, that, that was kind of wild. But it was, all, it was also silly, too, to hear the Snyder cut. <laughs> she's got a British accent, and then, and then none of that is there in, the, uh, in in Aquaman. But she actually has one of my favorite moments in this movie. I love like little like small moments with characters mm. where they bring joy, some type of joy to children. Those are like that's like that's like a key scene in like every like if you don't have that in a superhero movie, I think you failed a little bit. I, I love the scene in Guardians vol- Guardians of the Galaxy, the first one where. where Groot gives like a little like a little flower to this kid, and then in this movie, I love the moment where like she uses her, she gives the the girl a coin, the girl tosses the coin in the fountain, and she uses her water manipulating powers to have like this little like this little water show, mm-hmm. you know. It's so, it's, it's so a, adorable. It's a great scene. Such a lovely, lovely moment in what is otherwise a two hundred million dollar like bombastic, huge, <laughs> you know, spectacle of a thing, and you get to use the CGI for something that's like, kind of cute and kind kind of fun. And honestly. then, and then, almost moments later, you see her like crashing right into a uh, a wine store because they're in Italy, and they're like, oh! and then she like basically turns all the wine into like spears, and then like chucks them at the Atlanteans that are trying to kill them. Um, and on that note too, like Mara's again, Mara's not a character that could is like a like a quote unquote like a damsel in distress character. She again has her own powers. She fights, so I'm glad that you know they gave Amber Heard a lot to do, and you know she she kicks a lot of butt. She has a lot of great fight scenes. I love the scene in Italy when we have that like long tracking shot where like the Atlanteans like rushing through each of the each of the bits, and like she like grabs one of their swords and like. Like we have that, like the action choreography and like the the spinning camera dynamic that they that they do in this movie. Like she gets like one of those great fight scenes as well. So I was very, I was ultimately very happy with how Mara turned out in this movie. Honestly, there's one cast member we really have to talk about. This is the biggest one as far as like Hollywood lore, but also the biggest one in, in terms of like the physical size of this actual character <laughs> and. It does have a Disney connection. It has a big it Disney. Does. And we actually mentioned one of the movies that this Disney legend is in. If you don't know who we're talking we about. We are, of course, referring to Angela Lansbury's character from Bed Knobs and Broomsticks. Oh, no. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. No. No, I will uh, say, you... if Angela Lansbury voiced the, the Karathan, I would have still been like, oh, my God. 
you half breed. <laughs> but no, Julie Andrews, legend, legend, plays uh, the voice of the Karathan, who is essentially like an H.P. Lovecraft style giant underwater kaiju. Yeah, and she guards um, the the tri uh, Atlan Atlans uh, trident that Aquaman's trying to get throughout the movie, and um, then. Oh my god, the, the 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 end battle scene is insane. But um the craziest thing about Julie and we've said this before a million times, but the craziest thing about Julie Andrews voicing a giant kaiju in this movie is not just that 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 that's a thing, but also that this movie came out the same weekend as Mary Poppins Returns, and she didn't even want to be in that one. And you know who is in Mary Poppins Returns? Dick Van Dyke. Well, Angela Lansbury. And Angela yeah, Lansbury. Dick but Dick Van Dyke as well. Because <laughs> Dick Van Dyke was in the original movie. But but that, that was... Yeah, but but still, um, this creature... It's so crazy that they got Julie Andrews to do this. It's so but crazy. It's so weird because she's like... Uh, this, this sort of racist like, thing going on <laughs> with her character. She's like, you half-breed. You with your mongrel blood. <laughs> And the, and the best part is when, when, like, he responds, and she's like, bruh, you understood that? <laughs> like, oh, you can gosh. hear me? My bad? Oh, God. Oh, <laughs> I didn't think you could hear me. Shoot. <laughs> and I also just love the image of, uh, it was a King Atlan holding, holding, yes. holding the trident. It's, it's such a beautiful, um, such a beautifully done image. Um, like, I actually think about, like, the Snyder Cut, because that was done, like, 4-3. Four, four, like you know, or like the, the you know the old classic like as, as more classic yeah. aspect ratio, whatever the exact numbers are, and that has that has its strengths and limit limitations, and I think he does utilize it pretty well in that movie. But there's some beautiful like widescreen compositions, um, so many widescreen compositions in, in, in this movie, and I also it's one of my favorite Blu-rays that I own because in many instances it takes up the whole screen. Yes. Because like especially anytime they're in Atlantis, that's when it fully takes it up. Because that's those are the scenes especially that you really want to let the audience in, and you really want to like have them come in. Because the the way that they does the way that they make Atlantis in this movie is is Keanu Reeves. It's it's breathtaking. You know, it's it's like you see the the technological advancements, and you see like all the different ships which look like fish. Which is just silly and fun, and I love it. I, I love. There's like a background thing where you see like these like like turtle shell looking things are sort of like flipping around. Um, I love. I just I love the the, the design of like the seahorse. Like oh the sea, the know, sea dragon, yeah. The sea dragon. It's oh yeah. my god. Like just the imagery of Aquaman on the sea dragon, which has obviously been the quote unquote the joke for the longest time. This movie says nah. This is this this just cool. And you're going to see it. Yeah. And um, especially when he's got just so many different sea creatures behind him. Like, again, people make fun of Aquaman for, you know, talking to fish or riding a seahorse or whatever. But when you actually understand what that means, it's a, it's such a different thing. It's like saying the Flash just runs fast. But when you put... Or, or, or Ant-Man can only turn small. But it's like when you put the context behind it, like the Flash is a forensic scientist that can run fast. There's so much application there, which involves time travel, breaking physics. Um, and with Ant-Man, you know, especially the Hank Pym version, a scientist who is going to explore what shrinking actually means and how far it could take you. Or Scott Lang, who is a master, you know, master like and, thief. And, and engineer. 
an engineer, yes, and he's a, he's able to use that for other other purposes. And there's like, as you said, <laughs> <laughs> end game. He's like the time heist, or whatever. <laughs> a time heist, time heist, really. You know, and ultimately, it's it's those part those pin particles and stuff that help. Uh, they they help save the world. Exactly. They 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 listen. If it wasn't for Ant Man. <laughs> the blip would still have been a thing and Falcon and Winter Soldier wouldn't be a show, which depending on who you talk to, I don't know. I I, I would be upset. It's fine. It's a good, it's fine. It's, it's, it's fine. fine show. It's a fine show. It's a, it is a, it is a fine show, but like, yeah, I, I love the scene uh, where he's a little kid and the kids are making fun of him. And this kid just looks a lot like Jason Momoa. <laughs> it's it, like the, the kids that they cast up like young Aquaman is like ridiculously good. It's it's really good and and like the shark is like bruh you're not gonna mess with Arthur Curry like he's you just like you're gonna hey do that? hey what are you doing you back off my friend back off back off and it's just it's it's so <laughs> it's so it's so much fun but I just love like the sheer insanity of that final battle because you have John Reese Davies vo- voicing a crab guy and he's like <laughs> we must not let them take us. And you have, and you have like the, the like like the, uh, the the almost mermaid, but more fish looking uh, the fisherman. Like, is that the fisherman? Yeah, the fisherman. The, which, just... which, fun fact: um, when you see the makeup effect, when you actually see their face, is actually makeup, not a visual effect. Not a not a digital not a digital thing, which is really cool. And you have like you have killer whales that are there, great white sharks. What the the the, the, like the, a... the freaking like what's the the dinosaur thing from like. Jurassic World, what's that uh, called? Like a mo- like a mo- like a mosasaurus, something like that. Like the thing that King Orm Fee- rides. Feehan, Fee- listen, our good friend Doctor Feehan's probably going to message me and like push up his glasses and go, "Well, actually, guys, that specific um, creature you're referring to is X creature. Is so. big alligator dinosaur creature thing that King Orm rides. It looks cool. It looks cool. It looks That's all that matters. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> and you just see like like they literally have a giant space battle underwater. And then it just gets ins- more insane when the Karathin, like, you know, you see the tentacles just, like, shooting up out of the ground. And you see that great just, like, and just, like, the, the roar and Aquaman's on top of it. You see lightning freaking coming down, hitting the trident, <laughs> like, underwater lightning. And and he's just, like, screaming, and everyone's like, oh, my God. And, like, there's so much chaos. There's shooting plasma everywhere. And then, like... You know, Aquaman charges with the Karathin, and then you see a, a bunch of sea life coming to help him, and you see Mera coming, like, kicking everyone's butt with her tele- with her aqua kinetic powers or whatever, and um, then, you know, the most epic moment when Jason Momoa gets on that sea dragon, and he's rushing towards King Orm, and he's got his trident pointed, and you see all the trench monsters just, like, swarming behind him. It's the coolest thing ever. Oh, oh, oh. Can I also just say, one of my favorite, like, just silly moments is when like Mira, uh, Mira, she's she's talking to um, she's she's talking to Dolph Lundgren. I'm sorry. I, I, <laughs> I, what's his? Do you don't remember what his character's name is? I'm sorry. Ah, uh, t- crap. I don't. Yeah, I, I don't. don't I'm sorry. Matter. I'm sorry. It doesn't matter now. I don't feel bad. Anyway, like when he's talking to him, and she's just like, he has he has the trench. What? That's impossible. And the guy's like, no, it's true. We've seen he it. Has the trench. <laughs> he has the trident. He commands the sea. It sounds like a video game, like, cutscene <laughs> language. You have to, like, transition from a cutscene to actual, like, playthrough. I'd love that. Whoever delivered that line, just, like, shout out to you. Can you have an award? Like, I don't, like, I can't, I don't care what, just give you, not a Razzie, though. But, like, any award of excellence, you get that. You get it. 
Oh my god. And then and that was oh. oh, and then okay. This is just a slight make nitpick on my part, but like one thing I miss from superhero movies is like the final scene moments like in Spider-Man or even like the Joel Schumacher Batman movies where you have like there's no reason for it to be there story-wise. It's just there cuz it looks cool. Like a scene where the character like says like I'm so and so and you know like does some like cool thing like Spider-Man swinging through New York City or Batman and Robin running away from the bat signal. You don't get those Or cu- Zorro. Or Zorro like cut Zorro. like cutting the Z in flames super cool with like the the cougar growl that you know, the whole thing. You don't get that anymore. And so in this movie, when you see that great moment when Jason Moa has like a final bit of narration and like you just see him zipping through Atlantis and then he shoots out of the sea and pauses with like water going around. It looks like a great like statue everyone should buy and own in their collection. And he goes, I am Aquaman. And then credits and you're like, oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> oh, it's so good. It's so good. There's so much. There's so much to. It's just really like a feast, you know. Sometimes it can get a little long. It is a. It is a lot of movie. It is a lot of movie, and I mean, it, I mean, in both the best way and also just a slight, you know, it's 143 slight, minutes. In case you were wondering, yeah, it, it's it's quite a bit, but um, it it is in that movie. It's a lot of fun. There's a lot of a lot of stuff, like a lot of really good time in this octopus drums as octopus drums and. To go back to Twenty Thousand Leagues a little bit, it's it's one of those types of movies that um, very much emulates Jules Verne. You know, especially when you look at Atlantis, the city that, even though it was in a you know tremendously awful situation by being sunken into the sea from their own like technological prowess, um, <clears throat> uh, they advanced. Like the city became a technological marvel with like all different types of technologies that rival what the surface world has. And so it's, it's, yeah. you know, it's, it's stuff like that. And even just the fact the movie starts off with a Jules Verne quote. So, I mean, like there's no questioning that this movie definitely wanted to sort of evoke like the, the spirit of Jules Verne though. And it also makes me wonder like if Aquaman was a thing when Jules Verne was around, like if he had, had written an Aquaman story, what would that have been like? And it probably would have been amazing. I think about also too how like the story starts in both how some of the story starts in both of these where, you know, Atlantis um, is trying to st- like you know uh, at least what King Orm is trying to stage like these attacks from the trying to have like these attacks seem like they're really coming from the surface world mm-hmm. and like trying to create this war and then in twenty thousand leagues you have someone who is trying to destroy you know, destroy the surface, like the, the warships and these, you know, all these like terrible, you know, terrible people. Mm-hmm. And you know what? Kirk Douglas could have been a great Aquaman. He could have, man. I just, just, I just thought of that. And I was like, you know, but I, like but very classic, very classic very style. Classic. Yeah. Yeah. But I loved Jason was great. So I, I, I'm happy with what we got. I'm very happy. Yeah. I'm actually just imagining again, not to dwell on it, but Kirk Douglas in that orange, in that orange, you know, mm. Can someone Photoshop that or draw like some sort of fan art of what that could have looked like? That that would be that would be pretty rad. But both of these movies, I think they both explore just kind of how how cool the ocean is in, in a lot of ways, and just like just the vast potential of movies about the ocean. Because outside of maybe like a Disney like Disney nature documentary or some type of Planet Earth documentary, we don't get a whole lot of movies 
that are about people underwater. We don't. And that are fantasies, that are fantasies underwater. Like 20,000 Leagues, you got all these fantastic situations going on. In Aquaman, you have Jason Momoa and all this other... Jason Momoa befriending a Julie Andrews-voiced kaiju. Like, you know. How often can you even say that that happened? Like, or something remotely remotely close you just you just can't and it's like uh, one of the things i loved like when james wan was like talking about his approach to this movie like how many movies we have about space exploration and how many movies we have of characters like going to other planets which again is is an interesting concept but very little has ever been truly explored in cinema under the under the ocean it feels like well i also i think about um you know when they talk about the documentary about Twenty Thousand leagues like a lot of movies, they say it's very difficult to shoot a movie on the surface, mm. on the surface of the ocean, but shooting a water movie under the water is even worse. Like, yes. like Richard Flesher said it best, is like, the ocean is your enemy. The ocean <laughs> is out to get you. The ocean is out to prevent you from doing anything. And like this, like with Aquaman, like obviously while, you know, if they weren't exactly doing the stuff they were doing in the 1954 20,000 Leagues, they were still having to contend with what does talking underwater look like? What does what does the hair physics underwater look like? How are we going to make that convincing using the C- CGI technology that we have? And you know what? I'm so happy that they that they made it work because if we had if we if I had to have a million scenes of stupid air bubbles, I would have hated this movie. <laughs> 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 no offense. I will so say. Darn. I will say. Uh, uh, to to Chris Terrio's credit, like. He didn't have a lot of information. I mean, granted, I think it's a bit common sense just having talk underwater, but I will say to his credit, you know, they didn't know what they wanted to do with the Aquaman movie, and so there wasn't a script, there wasn't anything predating Justice League, so when he went into it, they did the air bubble thing, whatever. It's not my personal thing. It might have been, it also might have been a cost, there's like a cost aspect. Yeah, it could have been that too. About it as well, you know, that, that also just comes up to my mind anyway, but... Yeah, both of these movies are just really fun ocean adventure films. And you just you just have a great time watching them and especially these days they're just it's movies like this that just really help you get through things and you just have so much fun watching them. Like there's yet to be a moment watching either of these movies that I'm not like happy at the end of it or even throughout it. Yeah, I mean and again, as you said, like the ocean is one of the few like things that we can tap for as far as adventure. Yeah, like because we we know what what the frontier of the West looks like. We know we we don't need to go through the whole colonialism no. thing again uh, or imperialism and and all that stuff. But outer space and the ocean are two great avenues um, of of fantasy storytelling as far as just pure um, pure adventure. So, folks, what are some of your like? What are some of your favorite like? Jules Verne stories or adventure stories, water things. <laughs> Anything <No>. involving water. <laughs> water. You like water? I like water. Water's good. You know, what? water is good, so uh, please let us know. We have Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. YouTube. Uh, we bo- YouTube. Check us out. We got there. it. We each have letterboxes, and um, yeah, I mean... Just, just watch these movies, please. Just do it. You, it's, you, it's a good time. It's so worth it. Just, just, just do it. Anyway, folks, uh, hope you check us out next week. Have a good night, everyone.
Thank you for listening to Two Dudes, One Double Feature. Please follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Special shout-out, as always, to John and Kenny Armstrong. You both are so great. Thank you for the music that you make. And, of course, a hint for next week's double feature. We are going to explore some Shakespearean inspirations with Akira Kurosawa and Matthew Broderick. Stay tuned.